Please take your Bibles with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Let's pray before we get into God's Word. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Lord, we give you the glory, we give you the honor, and as we come to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would meet with us and use your word to convict and change us. Give us your grace now, Lord. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. This morning, we'll be looking and hopefully seek to finish Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll cover verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Let me read these verses. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? With whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. If you wanted to climb a mountain, or if you wanted to go down a mountain, you would need a rope. To get a rope to climb up a mountain or to go down a mountain, would you go to the dollar store? I'm not criticizing going to the dollar store. I enjoy some things at the dollar store. But if you're going to climb a mountain or rappel down a mountain and you needed a rope, would the top store that you go to be dollar store? Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. And why would that be? Because the rope that you would get there, its nature would not be resilient, tough, durable, or long-lasting. Maybe, if you were using it, maybe it would support one person for a, a brief amount of time. But it really would actually be dangerous for you to use that rope. In a similar way, true biblical faith is resilient and enduring, capable able, tough, weight-bearing. Fake faith, unbiblical faith, may look like a good rope. It, it, It may look like the real thing. But time and usage will prove otherwise. That is what the passage in front of us this morning primarily is talking about. And it's in a passage, Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 13, that is teaching us that drifting away from Jesus is a heart issue. Take care of the heart. Well, that itself, taking care of the heart, is a faith issue. And when people drift away from Christ, 
Foundationally, it's because of faith. If we as believers begin to a degree to back off from pursuing Jesus and, and resting in him, it's because of a lack of faith to, to one degree or, or another. Now, we have already looked at five different treatments that we need to have to take care of our hearts. Again, this passage, I mean the whole passage, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to 4.13, is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily teaching that when professors of Christ drift away from Jesus, it's a heart issue. Our temptation to drift away from Christ is primarily a heart issue. But we can take care of that heart. And we've looked at five. I'm not going to go through those five now, if you look in the back side of your notes, they are are there. But this morning, we're going to look at the sixth treatment, a sixth heart treatment, so that our hearts are, are right with God and with Christ, so we won't go AWOL on our faith, but stick with Him. This is the sixth treatment. Take care of your heart by preaching to yourself. Take care of your heart by preaching to yourself this message. True faith pushes forward, and though it may falter at times, it finishes. So the sixth treatment is that you preach to yourself. Well, what do you preach? Well, you preach this. True faith pushes forward. And though at times it may falter, like a Peter, it finishes. This is the sixth treatment. You, you have to preach to yourself. True faith pushes forward, even plods forward through thick and thin, through harvest, through, through a lot or through not having a lot. It, it pushes forward. And though it, it may at times fall down, it gets back up and it finishes the race. Now, this is extremely practical. It's possible, at least it's something that I think about, that as we look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 through 4.13, and even further on in the book of Hebrews, there could be a temptation to say, this is not that practical. It's not telling me how to love and serve my spouse. It's not telling me how to raise my kids. It's not telling me how to find a job or which school to go to or which politician to support. It it is possible that that could be a temptation. However, I would say that this text and this theology is extremely practical, but even this specific treatment, preach to yourself, faith by its divine nature, its God-given nature, faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Faith pushes forward, and though it may stumble, it will finish the race. That statement is extremely practical. In this sense, don't raise your hand, but how many of you take a pill every day? How many of you take either medication or a supplement? Don't don't raise your hand. I would think that today everybody here takes at least one 
one pill a day, at least one, maybe more than that. You know, even if you take supplements, it's like vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin this, this, right? We take all kinds of things. Always putting stuff into our mouths and our bodies. And we would say that's practical, right? I mean, it's extremely practical to take these different medications and supplements. We would even say that having a cell phone is is practical. Right now, I'm using the timer on it. It's practical to have a cell phone, and your cell phone, you look at it how many times a day, probably? 60? I don't know. You know many times. Probably over 20 times a day for, for most of us, probably. Why? Because it's extremely practical. Well, I would say, and I think this text is saying here for us, and I mean here, verses 14 through 19 of Hebrews chapter 3, that being sure that we understand and are meditating and thinking about this and taking this truth and putting it down our throats into our hearts or like a cell phone, that that we are focusing our eyes of our heart on, on this truth ends up being very, very practical in life. It may not always taste good or feel good, but it is very practical. Again, that is that faith works, and faith, though it it, it can struggle, and though it may be small, and though it may fall down, it will get back up, and it will finish the race. Maybe it won't finish first, but it's going to finish that race. It's going to go all the way. I think of First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you pass away, when you cross that river of death, or when Christ returns and by his grace we're still alive to see him come in the flesh, could there be anything more practical than seeing that our faith resulted in praise, glory, and honor at the disclosure of Jesus Christ? There'd be nothing more practical ever than that. And it's the trials of life, and even great trials of life, verse 6 says, that God purposefully uses to help our faith become even more precious, more valuable than gold itself. Therefore, this is extremely practical to take this truth that Hebrews chapter 11 will go into great lengths about. This faith will continue to go forward. It's extremely practical. And it's not perfect, but it plows forward. And it reminds me of a micro-animal. Maybe you have heard about it. If you've watched Octonauts, maybe you have not heard about it. The tardigrades micro-animal. Tardigrades, it's otherwise known as the water bear. 
Have you ever heard of this animal? They're like little tiny microscopic animals that looks like a cross between a bear and a caterpillar. And so don't do it now. Don't be distracted. But if you were to Google one of the most resilient animals, one of the ones that would be in the top ten would be first a, I don't know if it's first, but it will pop up in the top ten, would be a cockroach. But oftentimes, above the cockroach is the water bear. Little tiny mako, almost, or it is, microscopic animal. It can survive down into the abyss of the ocean deeper than 15,000 feet. It can survive and not be crushed. It can survive up in outer space. I think it is 15 to 20,000 feet. It can survive 300 Fahrenheit degree weather. Heat or minus 250 or 300 degree weather. It's very resilient, very tough. But yet, how big is it? Teeny, 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 tiny, teeny, tiny thing. And my own simplistic mind, I would think if something is tough, you know, you have to see it. You have to feel it. It has to be something massive like a mountain. You know, something big and, and, and granite. But here you have this teeny, tiny, microscopic animal that can survive more tribulation than some kind of superhuman. And that's just this little microscopic animal called tardigrades or water bears. And I say this because true faith is like these water bears. Because you might say, I, you know, my, my faith is so small, Tom. My, my faith is just miniature. I, I, I'm barely hanging on to Jesus. My, my faith is just teeny. Well, Jesus said, if you have micro faith, even that tiny faith can do what? It can move a mountain. Why? Because of its God-given nature and because of its object. And even something small, so small, this little tiny animal is super durable because of its nature. In a similar way, faith, no matter how small your faith is, it's divine in nature because that faith is not from you, it's from God. And it can go through any amount of trouble and come out the other side of that trouble and stand successfully. This faith is authentic faith, and it's for the the beginning, the middle, and the end of your Christian life. So talk to yourself about this kind of faith. It's true biblical faith. Sometimes... People will talk about that Toyota I drive, and I'm sure you've you've heard this. People will say, Tom, I'm glad you have a Toyota because a Toyota lasts. You can have a Toyota for for years. Hiking boots. You know, I've had now many different hiking boots, but in the past when I hiked in California, when I moved to Washington, I went out and I think like the second week I bought some hiking boots. And I, I bought I, I bought the wrong pair. You know, I spent 
probably the least amount of money I could spend on my hiking boots. And I went hiking uh, with Jason and some of the Pollocks one time. And afterwards, my hiking, the, the bottom of my hiking sole, it was just ripped to shreds. You could see my, my sock. So I had to type in, I need a hiking boot that lasts. And, and it gave many. And I didn't buy these because these were like $200. But Danner, D-A-N-N-E-R, hiking boots. I didn't buy those. I had to go middle of the line. But the, the, the point is, there are some objects that even we in our commercials or online, there are products that are sold that are sold because they're long-lasting, because they are durable. And that's what true biblical faith is. Now, you may ask yourself, Tom, why are you mentioning all this about faith? Well, verse 19, when it's summing up this passage, says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief, because of their lack of faith. Two million Israelites were not able to enter into the promised land because they were not trusting the promises of the Lord. And even chapter 4, as it continues and it applies these points, says in verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith and those who had heard. Therefore, this passage, verses 14 to 19, is talking about faith. And we'll talk about that more now in this next point. So, first of all, we're saying that this sixth treatment, so we don't drift away from Christ, we want to deal with our heart. The sixth heart treatment is that maybe daily, maybe a few times a week, I, I have to take my supplements from my heart medicine, my my inner man, my, my spiritual headquarters. And so I say to myself, true faith pushes forward. It, true faith doesn't just simply hold the line. True faith pushes forward. And though it might fall, it will continue to press forward. It get back up, it presses forward, and it's going to finish the fight, the battle, the race. Because of its object, but also because of its nature. And then second, in terms of understanding what this means, what this means about taking this sixth treatment, preaching to ourselves. Secondly then, this truth, that, that is again, true faith pushes forward and it finishes. This proves that you're part of the family of Christ. It it proves that you're part of Christ's family. That is, having trust in Jesus Christ, and though at times life is hard, and though maybe living for Jesus can't be hard, Jesus did say, if you want to follow me, you must do what? Pick up your cross and follow me. And these believers and professors of Christ in the book of Hebrews, some had been thrown into prison and some had had all their possessions stolen from them. They had trusted Jesus and life was not necessarily getting better. It was getting worse. 
And so they are, some are being tempted then to leave Christ and to go back to their previous life of some type of Judaistic religion, but not a godly religion. And so here the Spirit of God is saying, true faith is going to be part of Christ's family. It proves that you're part of Christ's family. Being associated with a godly religion, at least externally, doesn't prove that you're part of Christ's family. But continuing on in the faith demonstrates, proves, showcases that your faith is real and that you belong to Christ. Look at verse 14. You will see that it starts with four. For we have become partakers of Christ. Verse 14 and even the rest of the verses are giving grounds for the warnings of verse 12 and 13. We said that the fourth heart treatment from verse 12 was be your own heart bodyguard. You have to be a bodyguard of your own heart. But then the fifth heart treatment was also you have to be a bodyguard for somebody else. You have to guard your own heart and then you have to help other people guard their hearts. Why? Well, verse 14 is going to give the the motivational grounds for that. Because if people don't continue on and trust to Christ all the way until the end, till when they see Jesus face to face, then they're not really believers. Their faith was a fake faith. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2.19, they are no longer of us. They went out from us because they were not really of us. That's why they left the faith, because it didn't truly belong to the faith in the first place. Now, keep looking at verse 14, and it says, For we have become partakers of Christ. We have become sharers of Christ. And it says, if we hold fast. Well, this is very similar to chapter 3, verse 6. But as Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. It's parallel, very similar to verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You may wonder, Tom, how come you're pressing so much on on drifting away and, and pushing forward? Well, it's because of the text. Verse 6 says, if we hold fast. Verse 14 says, if we hold fast. Chapter 4, verse 14 says, let us hold fast. And all of this comes after chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which talk about not drifting away from such a great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. The idea, though, in verse 14, where it talks about partakers of Christ, then would seem to be parallel with whose house we are. We are partakers of Christ. If there's something that we are doing is the idea, then that's going to showcase or broadcast really who we are. But what does the phrase partakers of Christ mean? Well, in context of the book of Hebrews, 
we can just go back to, to chapter 2, we can know that we have participated in the atonement of Christ, the propitiation, chapter 2, verse 17, that God's anger and wrath has been satisfied against us because of the work of Jesus Christ by his life and death and resurrection, we can know that we have participated in that, not just because I raised my hand and said a sinner's prayer, but because, yes, I confess that Jesus is Lord, I ask him to save me, but I look at my life and I see that though it's difficult and though it's hard, I believe Jesus. I believe Jesus. Friends and family can forsake me. The whole world can forsake me. Though though I'm a sinner, Jesus is Lord. He's my Savior. I trust Him. After five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, you still want to know and rely and trust in Jesus. And so that gives evidence, then, that you are a partaker of this propitiation. I'm seeking to explain the phrase in verse 14 where it says, we have become partakers of Christ. Partaking in his work, in his personhood. Even in verse 10 of chapter 2, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the art of their salvation through sufferings. This partaking of Christ is even the idea of Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is, I can know that I'm destined to be glorified in Christ and with Christ and in a glorified condition and a place of glory forever and ever and ever. Why? Because he is, as it says later, the anchor of my soul. Not because I go to church, not because my family are believers, not because I'm homeschooled, but because... First, I've repented and trusted Jesus. And then that's demonstrated through a life of continuance. Yes, that the Bible does teach once you are saved, truly saved, then you are always saved. He that began a good work in you will perfect it until the end. That's true. That's scripture, Philippians 1.6. But that is worked out in your life. Though not perfect, there is this persistence of, by faith, I want to pursue and know Christ. And though I fall, the Lord is a light for me and I will rise up and I will seek forgiveness and I will press on and I will seek to know him. That is the relationship in verse 14 of we have become partakers of Christ. I've partook of his life, death, and resurrection, of his forgiveness, of his atonement, of that glory that he has that he's going to give to me, not because I've read my Bible, but only by faith alone, through by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But that is demonstrated, that's proved by continuance, by persistence in the faith. The reason why I say it this way is because there can be this methodology, when I grew up, there might be 400 kids at a youth ministry, and there might be guitars and, you know, basses, drums, which I love, and there could be all kinds of music, you know, Petra, whatever, which I love, and, and all the kids jumping up and down and raising their arms, and, you know, Jesus, 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 yes, yes. And then the, the pastor, the youth leader might say, how many people want to know Jesus? Raise your hand, and, you know, 
three quarters of the people raise their hands, and then and then I would raise my hand because everybody else is. Yes, 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 yes. But really, there was not a true thought out process of I'm a sinner and I need a savior, and that savior is Christ Jesus. I, I need, please forgive me, save me. I repent. I, I trust you alone. I can't get to heaven. I need you 100. percent It wasn't me thinking through that process, but. What can happen then is maybe a person can sign a card. Maybe they go to a Billy Graham conference, and Billy, or they did, and Billy Graham preached. And then all of a sudden, all these people start going down the aisles. Because he said, come for an invitation. And all these people start coming down the aisles. And so you also, you also want to go down the aisle because something great is happening. And I, I used to follow up some of the Billy Graham, some of the people that went to Billy Graham crusades and raised their hand and went down. And many that we would pursue truly said that they had not repented. But rather what some would do is they would look back at this day of raising their hand or going down an aisle and they would equate that with a type of faith. But yet when we looked at some of these individuals' lives, even some of my friends in the youth ministry 30 years ago, they're not following Christ. Their lives are really, really messed up. But they would say, when I've talked to them, I'm part of the Baptist church. It's, it's a 10,000 member church. Or maybe it's a 10 member church. You know, either it's this massive movement of God, or it's, you know, we're a very personal church. We, we have 10 members. But being part of a visible church, does not necessarily prove that you are saved, but what does prove, or what what can showcase your faith, is that you are continuing with believing on Jesus, that he exists, that he's your Lord, but also that there is a pursuance of him with your life. And in fact, when, when you look at verse 14... It says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, uh, two things. One is, in the New Testament Greek, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end is placed in front of hold fast. It's, for we have become partakers of grace. The beginning of our confidence, firm until the end, hold fast. And it's written that way in New Testament Testament Greek because it's underscoring, underscoring and highlighting this continuance. That is, not, not that I'm perfect, but I, I confess Jesus is Lord. I believe that God has raised him up from the dead. I'm a sinner. Lord, I repent. Please save me. And then 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, Though certainly I've had some issues and I've fallen, I seek forgiveness, but I still say Jesus is Lord, he's my savior, I'm a sinner. The only way I can go to heaven is by his atonement on the cross for my sins. Thank you, Lord. I I want to pursue you. I'm going to keep pursuing you with my whole life. And though I fall, I'm going to get back up and keep pursuing you so I can know you, Lord. And verse 14 is underscoring that and highlighting that because placed in front of the verb is the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And and Calvinistic doctrine, you would say that's the perseverance of the saints. It's a biblical doctrine. 
And that's what this verse, verse 14, is saying. Now, let me give a little bit of clarification here. When it says assurance, at least in the numeric and standard, and we talked about this a little bit this morning in the class on doctrine of the Bible. If you look at 3.14, it says, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Some versions, I think the ESV, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, a few others, won't use the word assurance, but it will use the word confidence. I would suggest that the best English word to use would be confidence. Because what what can happen, and what I was taught, not recently, but when I was a child, before I went to seminary, is that you should never question your salvation. Have you ever heard that? I was taught that. You should never question your salvation. I've had people, some here, some at Grace Church in L.A., some in India when I was there. Tom, should I question my salvation? And normally I would say, yes. I question my salvation. And what I mean by that is I want to examine my faith, to examine my life to be sure that I'm in the faith. But what can happen is that there has been a, a teaching that you should have this assurance of your salvation from the very moment you were saved and write down in your Bible that day that you were saved and the date, and the time, write it down in your Bible. So then, whenever you begin to think, maybe I'm not saved. Because of all these terrible things you've done. Just look back in your Bible, and look right there. It says, September 15th, I have no, that's not my day of salvation. September 15th, 1979, that's it. It says I was saved. It's in the Bible. I'm saved. And sometimes assurance then can be taken can be taken that way. And that's a wrong idea. And that's not what the Bible or this verse is saying. This is not saying that you know that you are saved if you always believe you are saved. This verse is not saying if you have assurance that you're saved, then you're saved. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying, if you have confidence, if you have a confident trust in Jesus from the time of your salvation and to the time that you see him, though, though it's not perfect, you are saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You're my Lord, my Savior, my, my shepherd. The only way I can get to heaven is through you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, save me. If that is your confidence, if your hope is Jesus, if your refuge is Jesus and not the church or, or not your family or not your good works, your confidence, your glory is in Jesus and you believe that from the moment of salvation until you take your very last breath, then that demonstrates that he saved you. That's what this verse is saying. Or you can see it this way. True faith plays the long game. True faith plays the long game. It's not a short game. Unless you're the thief on the cross, then that was very short. <laughs> it's possible 
a person believes in Jesus, they have true faith, and they die, you know, that year or a few years later. But most of the time, faith plays the long game. It's for the end. It's for the beginning, the middle, and for the end. And oftentimes, it's more like this locomotive. For most Christians, our faith would not necessarily be this dramatic, incredible experience with God, with, you know, all of a sudden we see light, and there's Jesus, and there's Moses, and there's Elijah, and they're together. Probably for most of us, we're not going to see that. It says in First Peter chapter 1, verse 8, we believe in the one that we don't see. Faith doesn't walk by sight. However, it's like a locomotive. Faith works, and it endures, and it's... It persists. Now, third, third, this statement, this prescription that you should take, that is, true faith pushes forward, and yes, it may falter, but it's definitely going to finish the race. It's going to finish the fight. It's going to go all the way, believing on Jesus until the end. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son, that all those who are trusting in him will not perish but have eternal life, is for the beginning, the middle, and the end. We always believe that. For those who are believing, not just who believe, but for those who are believing. And true belief will be demonstrated through continuing to trust his word. Number three, that is, again, we're explaining this sixth treatment. First, we said it's extremely practical. Second, we said when we exercise our faith in the beginning, the middle, and press forward, even during during difficult times, and even toward the end of our life, and even at the end of our life, that proves that we know him, that we're trusting him. And then third... This prioritizes a simple trust in Jesus Christ and his word. And we see this in verses 15 through 19. Now in verse 15, you can see this connection. And he's coming back from verse 7, which he's just mentioned. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of trial. He's mentioning that again. Why? Why is he going to mention this again? Well, he's going to give these illustrations. You see them in verses 16 through 18. And really, these illustrations, you can look at it and see it for yourself. There's these questions. And they come in pairs. And a question will be asked. And the question is answered with a question. So there's three pairs in verses 16 through 18, a question is asked and the answer is given through a question. But to set up the context, the Holy Spirit again brings out back, like in Psalm 95, back at Meribah, when the Israelites complained about not getting water, they complained against God and, and there was judgment. Or like in Numbers 14, when they were at the 
the border of the land. And they had sent out the spies. And ten of the spies said, we can't go into that land as giants. Only Caleb and Joshua said, we can take them. By God's help, by God's power, by his grace. Because God promised it in his word. We can take them. Let's go. The rest of Israel said, no, there's giants. It's, it's too hard. It's too difficult. And so God then was angry with them. And they did not enter this rest that God had for them. And this rest, in verse 18, was the land rest. It was the land of of Israel, the land of Canaan, the promised land. And we'll talk about what else the the rest means when we get to chapter 4. But basically for us, in our context, this promised land we'll be talking about, it'll be pointing to, that promised land of heaven. And so before these questions are asked, verse 15 is setting the, the context saying that God was really angry with these Israelites because of what they did, because of what they refused to do. And that they had hard hearts. Now, based upon that in verse 15, there are these questions, and I just want to ask them to you, and I'll, I'll try to group them together. So there will be three questions. First question. Are you trusting being in a Christian group or in Christ to save you? What is your your badge of salvation? Is it Christ and Christ alone, or is it your church heritage. I say that because look at verse 16. Who are these people that provoked him? They had heard God's word, Mount Sinai. They had heard God's word in the wilderness. Who were these people? Well, look at verse 16. It's emphasizing emphatically, indeed, did not all All those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. These were people that had seen the redemption, the power. They had seen the grace of God, as verse 6, chapter 6 will say in the the future. They had to some degree tasted and and partaken of the power and the grace and, and the wealth of God's favor. And they had known and experienced one of the greatest prophets and leaders in the history of the world. Of the world. I mean, who would you rather have be your leader? Spurgeon or Moses? Maybe you would pick Spurgeon. Who who would you rather have? Moses, one of the greatest leaders in the world ever. And yet... Two million of his followers were not able to go into the promised land. He probably did not read books on how to grow your church, how to be successful. Two million, at least, right, Jews that had been closely associated with the power and the grace and the might of God were not able to enter into the promised land. And they had one of the greatest leaders ever. It's sad. 
It says here in verse 19, so come to the conclusion. So we, we see, we come to the conclusion that they weren't able to enter because of unbelief. What? <laughs> Sometimes we can cry, oh God, show me your power. If only you would do a great miracle in my life, then I would really believe. They had seen more miracles in their life. They had seen more of the power of God in defeating Egypt and in rescuing them from Pharaoh than we were ever ever seen. Even in terms of provision, right? They, they would walk out of their tents. Oh, breakfast. Thank you, Lord. Manna. All right. Lunch. Dinner. Thank you, Lord. Forget drive-through. You have God delivering manna every day for you. But yet, all that care and love, it didn't produce faith. It says they weren't able to enter the promised land because they did not believe. And it seems this text here in verse 16 is talking about that they were associated with all this power and miracles of God and they were associated with a great human leader. But their problem was they didn't believe who? Yahweh. They didn't believe God. Are you believing Jesus? Are you more tied to some human leader? It's very easy to become part of a movement. Right? MacArthur is going to die soon. I mean, oh my gosh. Uh, Piper is going to die. Steve Larson is going to die. They're all going to die. What's going to happen? It goes on and I told you. Well, I can't go there. Sometimes you can talk to different people, different leaders about, you know, should, should you ever replace this guy? <gasps> Be play. Don't speak that way, Tom. That's one time what I was told. Don't talk that way. These people followed one of the greatest leaders ever. But yet they didn't really believe in God. So what I'm saying, this text is saying, is be sure you're trusting Jesus and not a man or a movement or even this being, you're associated with seeing God doing great things doesn't mean that you're saved. What what shows that you're saved is that you believe on Jesus. You believe he's your Lord, your Savior, that he's died on the cross. You've trusted him, and you get as closest to him as you can. And even when you sin and you fall, you even run closer to him. And then pursue him even more. Second question. Is the Lord trying to get your attention? Is the Lord right now... Trying to get your attention. You can look at verse 17. With whom was he angry for 40 years? Well, those Israelites that experienced all the grace, power, and might of God, they had come to the promised land. The land was theirs to the taking. Uh, all of them, except for two of them, said we can't do it. Well, that whole generation died. Whose bodies fell in the wilderness. Talk about a, a lesson from the parents. Right? That's a parental lesson. I'm sure my kids can look at me and say, yeah, dad, dad has failed in some areas. What about these parents? Massive failures. How do we know that they were failures? Well, the text is saying God, God judged them. Their bodies fell dead in the wilderness. These are the ones that were redeemed by the power and grace and blood of God out of bondage. And yet, because of their unbelief, God judged them and they fell dead. 
whether you are someone that has professed to know Christ and you have drifted away from him because you're really you don't have true faith, or even if you are a believer and you know him, but you're pursuing sin, realize what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with his sons. So, two things here is, pay attention. I'm sorry, you ask yourself, is the Lord trying to get your attention and this verse is saying that God was getting the attention, not of the people that fell, but of their children. God was doing something in the midst of a generation to show them that, look, here's a lesson. Believe me, trust me, and it will go well with you. Don't believe me and don't trust me, and it's not going to go well for you. And God could be doing this in your life, teaching you this by providential circumstances, or he could be doing it in somebody's life that you know and love. Now, what I am not saying, I'm not saying every time something bad happens, that means that you're living in sin. I'm not saying that. But is it possible that sometimes God puts us through difficult providence in order to get our attention? Could we at least say that? That sometimes God will take me to the woodshed in order to say, Tom, wake up! You're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt others. Yes. And that's what I believe the Lord is saying in verse 17. And so, some of you, maybe you're not pursuing Christ the way that you used to. You, you used to be out in front, uh, humble, but yet in your heart, white hot for knowing Jesus. But now it's like, you know, too much is going on and God didn't do this and God didn't do that and this has happened in my life. And, you know, and God may be seeking to get your attention to say, keep believing in me. Don't back away. Don't back off. Keep the pedal to the metal. Keep going forward. God does many things in our life to bless us. But part of that blessing could be taking us through difficult times in order to wake us up, in order for us to get closer to Him. A third question. What keeps you out of heaven and causes problems in your life? What keeps you out of heaven, or anybody out of heaven, and causes problems in your life? And you see this in verse 18. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? How were they disobedient? Foundationally. Well, verse 19 says, so we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief, because of lack of faith. They're, they're, they did disobey. The, they primarily disobeyed in the sense that they did not believe that God was good that God would fulfill his promises. Go into the land, take the land, seize the land, it's yours. I, I prepared your way. I will be with you. I promise, look how I've taken care of you. Do what I say. Trust me, I'm with you. I, I will give you everything that you need. But I really like onions and leeks in Egypt. And 
I would rather be a slave in Egypt and eat, you know, leeks and onions and all these things than fight giants in a land of promise and have to do that by faith? Well, that kind of attitude is an attitude of disbelief. Why is disbelief so bad? Well, basically, it's a refusal to take refuge in God. It's saying to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, you're not a good refuge. You're not an all-powerful refuge. You're not a worthy refuge. You really don't come through on your promises. This is an attitude of rebellion. It's a refusing to trust God and to live by his promises is actually raising your fist to God, saying, you're not good enough for me. There's something better. And that's basically paving a way to hell. You're not building a stairway to heaven. You're building an escalator to hell by refusing to trust in the goodness of Jesus. For believers, we can even think of it this way. Philippians 4 says, The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And then what happens? The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. If we trust God, then we're going to run to him in prayer. We're going to cast our cares upon him. And that will help us to not be squashed by anxiety. So if I happen to be squashed by anxiety, I must not be resting in him. It's not that I don't ever struggle with it, but if I'm being crushed by it, then I must not be believing in that good kindness and powerful refuge of God that's in Christ. And he says, he's with me. And he won't give me anything which is too strong for me to bear. And he will bear it with me. And even for me. And so I trust him. What keeps somebody out of heaven and causes problems is faith in Jesus. That is, don't, don't make everything so complex. Life is complex. Going to heaven is not complex. Trust Jesus. Don't trust your good works. Trust in the Jesus of the Bible. Turn from you with sin. Trust Jesus. You're going to go to heaven. With all the issues and problems of life, and life could get much more complicated, how do we live? You trust Jesus. You trust Jesus Christ. Take refuge in him. Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 says, How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. My faith might be the size of a water bear. Tar degrades. Little tiny microscopic animal. Maybe yours is is bigger than mine. It probably is. However, it's not necessarily the size of the faith, but the nature of our faith and its object is, is so magnificent that the faith that we have will continue on until the end. And when we don't need faith, that's when we see him face to face. And that's when we'll be home with Jesus Drifting away from Jesus Christ is a trusting Jesus Christ issue 
which is a heart issue. Going AWOL from Christ is because of lack of faith. It's not complex. Trust the Lord. The Lord is good and he does good. Jesus is worthy of your trust. He's Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for your word. You are worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our faith. May we have this faith, Lord, which is from you, which continues on. We don't look to men. We don't look to movements, Lord. We don't look to a building, Lord. We look to one Savior, one Lord, one Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may you be our refuge and our shelter. And may we continue to press forward, no matter what, because of your goodness, Lord. Press forward in you and for you. For Christ's sake, amen.